Hello, everyone, and welcome to what has inadvertently become Higher Education in Small Towns Week here at Range. Brought to you by my broken home heating system. <laughs> oh, man. I had a bit of a maintenance and repair issue last week that pushed this episode out a little bit just long enough that it coincided quite nicely with a print piece we just published on Wednesday. You know that saying, history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme. Well, after working on both these stories this week, holy cow, do they rhyme. So in today's part of this two-part harmony, we're going to talk with Emma Pettit of the Chronicle of Higher Education about a really strange conflict happening at North Idaho College in Coeur d'Alene, sort of between the administration at large, but really centered on the president of the university and the school's board of trustees. It's almost like a civil war, and it's very much a politicized fight with the new majority of the board of trustees bringing a decidedly political valence to nonpartisan positions. These board positions are elected, but they've been historically nonpartisan. That is no longer the case. Here is Emma quoting the board president's email to a student who lodged a complaint because they were not allowed to write a report comparing and contrasting early American slavery and, I guess, the modern abortion rights movement. Bansi Chu responded, telling the student that he was battling the college's deep state on an almost daily basis, and that liberals are, quote, deeply entrenched uh, within the institution, but, quote, we are registering victories. Ain't that something? The details are fascinating. You're not going to want to miss it. But in parallel, we've been working on a print story for most of March about a public art project in Pullman that has turned into a citywide debacle. After the death of George Floyd and the protests that resulted, a coalition of local residents, WSU students, faculty, and staff asked the city to commission a Black Lives Matter mural. City council was like, sure, but then when the Arts Commission put out the call, it was a call for a, quote, end racism now mural, which is, you know, not the same thing. Would it surprise you to learn that it didn't go well? The city council balked at the chosen design. Pullman art commissioners resigned en masse. And the people pushing the city for a Black Lives Matter mural were just like, screw it, we're going to do it ourselves. It's a great story by our old pal Daisy Zavala and first-time range scribe Jenna Nash. Check it out at rangemedia.co right now or just look in your inbox if you're one of the thousand or so geniuses who subscribes to this newsletter. It'll be in there already. So obviously those aren't the same stories at all. One's like very specifically a college story. The other is sort of very specifically a small town story, but they sink. And as I was working on both of these this week, the melodies really sort of aligned and harmonized together. Both these stories in their own unique way are kind of about, let's say, to be genteel, the neighborly tensions between small Western cities and the institutions of higher education within those cities and counties and the people, the, the citizens who are all citizens of these places, the cultural differences between the two. It's a gross, almost absurd understatement to say that Kootenai County could not be more different than Whitman County. Whitman is the most reliably Democratic county in Washington's 5th Congressional District. Kootenai County has been called the most conservative county in America, right? Similarly, Washington State University could not be more different than North Idaho College as institutions go. WSU is a massive land-grant research university whose enrollment effectively doubles the size of Pullman. NIC is comparatively much smaller. It's a community college. As a proportion of the population of Coeur d'Alene, it's not even close to being equal the way that Pullman and WSU are. 
There's lots of workforce training and non-traditional students and not a lot of cultural Marxism. And yet a key dynamic of these conflicts seems to be the chasm between campus culture and county culture. In Pullman, it's the diverse students and faculty at WSU wanting the city to embrace the movement for black lives as unequivocally as the campus does. And city politicians sort of darting their eyes back and forth between campus community and the more homogeneously white city, sort of like comically tugging at their collars. Like, is it hot in here? You guys think it's hot in here? In Coeur d'Alene, and here is where I slyly transition to introducing today's guest, Emma. In Coeur d'Alene, several operatives of the local Republican Party ran to be on North Idaho College's board, which is a publicly elected position. They won a total of three seats, which doesn't seem like a ton, but it's enough to give them a super majority because the board's only five people. And the new board chair, who is also a member of the local Republicans, began making, almost the moment he was in office, began making a series of really bizarre onerous and kind of almost threatening requests of NIC's president, like asking to be made aware of any and all vacation and time off the guy takes. So not outright threatening, but kind of like I got my eye on you type behavior, right? Faculty and staff largely support the president and have gotten increasingly upset, including holding votes of no confidence in the board president. The university president has gone public saying effectively that these board members are sort of harassing him with a million petty requests, making his life miserable. One of the other two sort of more faculty-aligned board members went to the local press. It is a huge mess, and it's been covered locally quite a bit. I've got links to all those in the show notes, but it's a big enough deal, a weird enough story that the Chronicle of Higher Education and our guest today, Emma Pettit, picked up on it. Can y'all believe what's happening over in North Idaho? We did this interview about a week and a half ago. And since that time, I keep coming back to an exchange near the end. And I'm going to th- I'm gonna play it up front and just to sort of help frame the, the conversation as it goes. And then once we get back to it near the end, I think it'll help bring things full circle. Just take a listen. Listen to my question first and then Emma's answer. Is there any hope for recourse at a state level, or is this just going to be something that NIC folks are stuck with until they build the, the political power to to elect a different board or change the composition? Yeah, well, uh, I guess I would challenge that framing sure. a little bit because, you know, the looking at it from the voters' perspective, the voters voted in who they wanted. Right. So, you know, the whole time I had been thinking and sort of framing my questions like a faculty person or an admin person or somebody who worked at the college or took classes at the college, asking a lot of questions about recourse to sort of return to normal. And Emma was like, you're kind of missing the point here, bud. (laughs) In this situation, the desires of faculty and staff are almost beside the point. I mean, they're voters like everybody else, but this is a countywide elected board. The people who just got elected are exactly who the voters of Kootenai County want. And that's what's so fascinating about both of these stories to sort of bring it back together real quick. In each case, there seems to be a pretty significant values gap between the cloister of the college and university respectively and the surrounding communities. It manifests in different ways, but it's there in both. So is that enough to hook you? Good, because now I'm going to ask for money. If you like what we're up to here at Range HQ, deep interviews, deep reporting about specifically this region, about, you know, the Inland Northwest. Or, you know, if you're just worried about my ability to continue heating my home, if you want to contribute to the Pug Palace Maintenance Fund, that works too. Go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe uh, to become a member today. I say this every week, but this work is, we keep it free so that the people that have the means to pay can pay and feel good about supporting 
what I hope you feel is a vital and valuable part of the civic life of Spokane, a, a journalistic piece, but a civic piece as well. But then those who can't afford it get to enjoy it as well and help them sort of stay up to date on and be informed and empowered to, to change our city for the better. And honestly, can you put a price tag on power, citizen power? Well, we have. It's $10 a month or $100 a year. Rangemedia.co slash subscribe. Okay, let's get to it. The Community College Coup in Kootenai County, Idaho. Yeah, that was almost like a quintuple alliteration. Not quite. A head-scratching, jaw-dropping peek into a kind of goofy and yet also incredibly serious clash of political and educational wills right next door. Emma Pettit of the Chronicle of Higher Education coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 33. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days. All right, Emma Pettit, thank you so much for coming on Range. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So you're a reporter with the Chronicle of Higher Education, and you wrote this piece recently about what seems kind of like a hostile takeover of one of our local community colleges, North Idaho College in Coeur d'Alene. So I thought the first thing we could do was just spend a little time going over the high-level details. So sure. what the what the hell is happening at NIC? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, so to zoom out a bit first, um, nationally, nationwide, conservatives have had a declining opinion on higher education writ large for the past decade or so. Um, There was a pretty significant drop off between, I believe, 2015 and 2017. It's pretty striking now the difference between Democrat and Republicans' opinion on higher education and the role it plays in in the future of the country. Mm. And so that trend is certainly present in North Idaho um, and in Kootenai County. Locals have been frustrated by the college for a variety of things. And that that seems to have escalated recently, um, both in the college's like approach to COVID, the supposed entrenched liberalism of mm-hmm. its faculty members. And that's something you hear, again, in, in many other parts of the country. And so that was all kind of fomenting. And then the local Republican Party got involved to a certain extent in the Board of Trustees race at North Idaho College. And the exact degree of how much they got involved isn't totally clear, but basically two elected members of the local Republican Party ended up running for the Board of Trustees. It's a five-member board. Um, They were highly rated by the local Republican Party, and that group has kind of shown an interest in getting involved in nonpartisan elections. And they won, and they basically joined Todd Banducci, who is a longtime board member at NIC, Mm -hmm. who's also an elected member of the local Republican Party in Kootenai County, and a longtime board member who's been accused by fellow trustees of being aggressive in his behavior and and is kind of known for his brashness. And so he had actually been censored for his conduct with a college employee the year prior. So he now has the votes to become 
the board chair. And both in front of and behind the scenes, he starts making some changes. Um, and he, he didn't talk to me for the story. So this is kind of going off of what other people have said. So I just want to make that sure. clear up top. But he, he basically argued for rescinding a, a board conduct policy that the board had approved prior to the election. According to the college president, had pressed the president for letting the wrestling team start up again. At some point, he told a student that he was battling the deep state of progressives at the college. And he, according to the president, had told the president that if uh, he didn't follow his marching orders, that he could potentially be fired. Or that that's the way that the president took it. So this all boils over in January when he sends a series of emails uh, to the president in a short amount of time with different requests. In one of those emails, he notes that a student didn't say the words under God during the Pledge of Allegiance. And he says that he expects that the, quote, institution will work hard to see that that should never happen again. So the president, Rick McLennan, um, decides to write a letter to or write an email to the board detailing what's been happening behind the scenes. And he basically implores them to do something. And another trustee um, writes a letter of her own detailing what she describes as Banducci's conduct towards her. According to her, Christy Wood, he once um, pointed his finger at her and said, I ought to take you outside right now and kick your ass. Um, there's other examples that she recounts um, in this letter, and she calls on him to step down. He doesn't. Faculty and staff groups vote no confidence in him and say he should be removed as chair. So two board members want him to step down as chair. The three other trustees, including Banducci himself, vote no. And so it's been playing out in these both private and public board meetings where it's clear that there is a lot of tension. Another one of the trustees criticizes Christy Wood for going to the media and calls it a, a public smear campaign. And that's that's where we are now. Disagreements seem to be continuing to fester. So you didn't get, we'll talk about this more later, but the Banducci side and his, his allies who are Michael Barnes and, and Greg McKenzie, who are all, like you said, rep, uh, elected officials with the Republican committee in Cooney County. They didn't speak on the record. They just uh, gave statements. But there is kind of a paper trail. You were able to do a bunch of public records requests that got like a lot of emails back and forth. So you, there is a fair amount of he said, she said, he said, he said, but there is also some at least documented back and forth about these letters that were written. So then the key actors are, like I said, Banducci, Barnes, and McKenzie, sort of under Banducci's leadership as the new board of trustees president, and then university president Rick McLennan and trustees Christy Wood and Ken Howard, who are... They've been on the board for a while as well, correct? And are they? Do they both have a background in education? Yeah. So um, Christy Wood is has been on the board for I want to say sixteen years. Um, she was a career police officer. She's also a city council member in Coeur d'Alene, and mm -hmm. she serves on a human rights, I believe, task force as well. Um, I know a little bit less about Ken Howard's background, but he's, an, he's a local attorney, um, and he actually was one of the attorneys who was involved in the, the lawsuit that brought down the Aryan nations. Oh, right. Okay. In, in the area and, and led them into bankruptcy. And he has also been on the board, I think a shorter amount of time than Christy, but he he's also one of the longer time trustees. 
we'll get into this more later, but the people that Barnes and McKenzie beat out for the position to sort of give Banducci his, his majority at the board were both uh, educators as well, right? Yeah. So Joe Dunlap was on the board. He had been, he was a former president of the college. He was the incumbent trustee and he was um, a former president of Spokane Community College as well. Um, and Paul Sturm was the other person running, and he had been um, a public school district superintendent for a decade and had had a whole career in, in K-12 before that. So do you have a sense of how much sort of this new power that Banduji had, how much did it accelerate or intensify the tactics that he was sort of using to try to, you know, to extract sort of a difference in a, like a change in administration from McLennan? So being chair basically means um, that you're at the public face of the board. So you're responsible for communicating on behalf of the board of trustees. You're kind of the official voice. And you also provide an evaluation of college president and consult board members on their roles and performances. So again, I'm sure I'll end up sounding like a broken record, but you know, trustee Banducci, he didn't end up talking to me for the story. So I don't really have his perspective on all this, but basically from conversations I've had, it seemed like he was from conversations with other people, really eager to take on this chair role. And you can see in emails that he was asking the president or maybe more than asking the president to, you know, do things like bring back wrestling and to, update him more frequently. And it was clearly a range of requests that were making the president uncomfortable and felt like that he was really overstepping his bounds as as the new board chair, which which the president eventually kind of pushed against or pushed back on. And another issue was that he, in, in his communications with the president, he wasn't CCing the full board. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, he would either basically CC Greg McKenzie, who's another trustee, but he wouldn't be keeping the other board members kind of abreast of his communications with the president. And so that's that was another big thing that emerged is in higher ed and governance structures, other trustees, they were really concerned that there'd be this kind of one-on-one communication happening between the board chair and the president and other trustees were just totally kept out of the loop, they felt. So those those were kind of the, the big issues that emerged after Banducci became chair. It also seemed like he was doing things that, like on the surface level, seemed kind of petty to me, but I want to know if this is, is something that would be sort of normally within a board chair's purview and in other institutions. The, like he was asking McLennan like for his his vacation requests and the amount of time he'd taken off during the year almost as a way of I don't know like probably calls for too much speculation but clearly checking up on him and his his behavior yeah and there was he kind of uh this email wasn't included in the story but he he did seem to kind of vent privately to Greg McKenzie another trustee about kind of the lack of communication that he saw coming from the president and so it seemed clear that he was taking a, a much more, you could say involved, you could say micromanaging role in yeah. what he thought the level of communication should be between the college president and himself. Um, and, and some of the board members who are more aligned with Bantucci have said that they, they felt that the board wasn't asking questions of the institution or of the president like it should be. They, they, seem to believe in a much more um, 
inquisitive or intrusive, right. depending on your perspective, relationship between the board and college administration. So it seemed like a real, a real difference in philosophy, certainly. So one of the things you brought up was like a lot of this happened all over the country. It happened in Spokane a lot. Like there was a lot of tension uh, around like, you know, reopen, lockdown, mask mandates, all that stuff. All that stuff played out in these emails to some extent. You already sort of suggested like Banducci was like, let's start wrestling back up. He asked why the basketball team wasn't playing because the Zags had been practicing. So there was that element of it, just like the reopen controversy stuff. But then a lot of the rhetoric that was shared during the campaign, like on social media and stuff, was around, you know, the sort of like cultural Marxism or that, that liberal bias that you talked about. Were, were there any requests made before everything kind of blew up that would have sort of been more about sort of trying to address that? Requests? What do you mean by requests? <laughs> like, you know, were, were there requests to the tune of like, what are you going to do about these, you know, liberal professors? Or what are we going to no. do to get more sort of like balance in our in our faculty or something like that? Right. Yeah, I think, it, no. And certainly I have not seen, I didn't get any emails or anything like that of, of that nature. And at a recent board meeting, uh, Chair Banducci asked the, I believe, faculty senate president, like, have we ever influenced or tried to put our fingers in the pie of what happens in the classroom <laughs> yeah. at North Idaho. Yeah. And the, the faculty Senate president responded, no, you know, you haven't. Like, I have not seen any influence certainly on what I teach within the classroom. But then he went on to say, the actions of board members have really intense ripple effects. And, mm. you know, he didn't say this explicitly, but I think he might have been kind of referring to an email exchange that Banducci had with a student who was complaining about censorship in the classroom. And Banducci basically responded and said, like, I hope to wade into your endeavor at some point and potentially get that grade up and, um, you know, really seemed to side with the student and told him that, uh, that he was like, you know, battling the quote unquote deep state at NIC and that liberals were entrenched within the institution. And so... Sorry, not to cut you off. What, this, this was a student who wanted to write a paper comparing and contrasting abortion to slavery. Is that correct? Yeah, that was... Um, it was a project that the student had wanted to do on the similarities of early American slavery and abortion. And it was a very, very long complaint um, that they had sent to the American Center for Law and Justice and then forwarded to uh, Chair Banducci... But yeah, the the American Center for Law and Justice, which is like this um, Christian legal ag advocacy organization that was founded by the televangelist Pat Robertson. Okay. Um, so the student had complained about being censored over a project uh, that they had wanted to do, and you know it was a whole whole big long complaint. And Banty responded, telling the student that he was battling the college's deep state on an almost daily basis, and that liberals are quote deeply entrenched. Uh, within the institution, but quote, we are registering victories and said that, you know, at some point in the future, maybe he could get involved in this student's endeavor and potentially adjust the grade. So as a faculty member reading that, as a faculty member at North Idaho College, I could imagine that that would uh, raise some red flags around or just raise some eyebrows around, you know, academic freedom and what a faculty member's what actual control they have over what they teach in student complaints, especially if you have 
a board member who's kind of intervening on that level. Um, that's that's certainly a, a a new level, I guess, of scrutiny than than I'm used to seeing from boards of trustees or trust trustee members, I guess. Gotcha. Okay, so there, this all sort of led to sort of a counterpunch from McLennan and the other trustees. Christy Wood and, and Ken Howard. So what was the what was the shape of that counterpunch? How did it spill out into the public? And, and what was the result of that? Sure. Um, so basically in, in January, um, Bantucci sent McLennan, the president, um, a stream of, of warning emails and asking for asking for things like uh, an accounting of leave days that he was taking and told the president that he wanted meeting notifications as far in advance as possible, that he had a very busy schedule, that he wanted the college president to start sending regular summaries of his activities and also to send him like an accounting of his submitted expenses for the last year and a half. So these all, all these requests, I guess, come, you know, politely worded, but rapid fire on a, a Friday morning in January, and only one other trustee of the five-member board was was copied on those emails. And so President McLennan, I guess, decides that, you know, he had clearly hit a tipping point of some kind, and he decided to write to the full board and basically lay out point by point some of the things that he that were happening behind the scenes. And so he kind of recounted what he called um, a pattern of aggressive and intimidating behavior from Banducci. And he d- he didn't include he said those emails didn't rise to the level of what he considered aggressive and intimidating behavior, but rather he considered it this kind of larger pattern. Gotcha. But there are a couple things that he include included in that email, like that. Um, he says that he had a conversation with Banducci right after the election and that Banducci disparaged his wife for supposedly being a Hillary Clinton supporter and had told the president that they'd be meeting more frequently so that Banducci could give him his, quote, marching orders, which the president, Rick McLennan, took as a threat of, of potential termination if he didn't fall in line. Wow. So he basically details all this in a letter, as I was saying, to the to the full board. And he he basically says like that he he knows that he's kind of opening a door that's not easy to close, but he called the present situation untenable. Um to him it seemed it seemed unworkable. So it's clear, again, he didn't he didn't talk to me for the story, but it, it seems pretty clear from that that these issues had been churning and, and building for a while. So at what point did that letter, which was to the board, become sort of public or what, and, and how did that happen exactly? And then what led to, there, there eventually was a, a, a vote of no confidence and stuff. So the president sends that email to the full board. One of the board members that I've mentioned, Christy Wood, got that letter and said, she said to me that she was basically appalled that she, I don't think there's any, you know, love lost between her and Banducci over the years. So she said um, she got the letter. She was appalled by it. And she basically decided that enough was enough. And she was kind of influenced, I think, by the fact that the board 
had privately censored Banducci the year before for his behavior with an employee at the college. The details on on what happened there aren't aren't totally clear um, because the college, I made a request for the investigative records about the incident, but the college didn't provide them saying that they were, you know, personnel records. Um, But basically a staff member had complained about Banducci's conduct and the or the college did its own investigation and had found that it wasn't, uh, his conduct wasn't a Title IX violation. Basically, this all happens and the president is basically saying, look, uh, you need to intervene here. And Christy Wood no longer thinks that something private is acceptable, is, wow. is how she put it. Um, yeah. she, she wouldn't agree to any kind of private resolution. And so Basically, she gave, she wrote her letter where she detailed some of the things that ben, she says Banducci had done to her, like, you know, threatening remarks and um, some other kind of aggressive behavior towards another former trustee, and basically gave him 24 hours to resign. And he didn't. And so she sent her letter to the Coeur d'Alene Press, the local newspaper there. Yeah. And they wrote about it and requested Rick McLennan's letter and those emails as well. So that's how it kind of broke uh, into the public sphere and became this kind of huge local story. You know, I I read some of the letters. I think a reasonable person could feel threatened by Banducci's behavior and just kind of like, you know, throwing his weight around. And I think if you're a university president, you have a reasonable, a reasonable expectation of a high level of autonomy, you're, you know, and, and even on boards in general. So on that side, and then on the other side, Christy, a number of things that sort of Christy Wood said, the reason she was going public was she was worried that this sort of, so let me just quote her, she, she feared Banducci's behavior, quote, flew in the face of good governance, set the institution up for possible litigation, and possibly threatened the college's accreditation. So on either side there, how easy, if these were indeed threats, or is there bite to that bark, could, how easily could Banducci get McLennan fired if that's what he wanted? And then on the other side, how real does the threat of litigation or a loss of accreditation seem based on, you know, what you know about the specifics, what you know about Idaho higher ed, and and maybe what you know about like the way these things work nationally? To answer your first question, I, I basically have no idea um, how easily or not easy it is to, to fire the president. I just know that the president serves at the pleasure of the full board and it takes the full board to hire the president. Presumably it takes the full board or a majority to fire the president, but I've, I've not looked into how that actual dismissal policy works. Um, as for threat of litigation, again, that's hard for me to really say. Um, I did talk, uh, with the college's accrediting body for the story that that part didn't make it in. And basically, they emphasized to me that their role is student success. So everything that they evaluate is kind of through that lens of do these actions, do the things that are going on or supposedly going on harm students in some way, harm student success. They do look at governance issues when they do their review. And they did tell me that from for their perspective, it is the board, not individual board members that have purview in saying what an institution may or may not do. And they kind of reinforce the idea that the president is the one who's in charge of operations and the board sets expectations and and to a certain extent policy. They did add that the North Idaho had done really well on its last accreditation review, which happened in 2020. 
and they haven't gotten any explicit like written complaints, which is how they kind of evaluate things. But basically, the, uh, one of the leaders of the accrediting body said, quote, if these things impact student success, you best believe that we'll be on it. Hmm. Um, so it, basically, we, we'll see. We'll yeah, see right. if this comes up in the future. Right. So basically, it's like this, this is a, like a little slap fight among adults. It's not going to rise to the level of like our purview and, unless it stops affecting the quality of education being delivered. Yeah, I think they, I mean, they just kind of said over and over that it's, it's suited success that they're looking at. So I think sure. that that's a, that's a way to put it, which isn't to say that some of these issues couldn't potentially affect that or one could make the case for that being something that's affected by what's gone on so far. But I guess time will tell if that's something that they end up looking at. Yeah, totally. Local news outlets, like you suggested, the Coeur d'Alene Press got this story. I think the Spokesman Review in Spokane wrote about it. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, though, is to try to understand this specific situation in the context of the national environment. You've already sort of hinted at it a little bit, but this is your this is your job. You cover higher education all day, every day. And so in what days does this sort of tie into national trends in, in those ways you were suggesting that conservatives have started engaging actively with higher ed and, and in what ways is it unique? Yeah, great question. And that's part of why the story appealed to me is in a lot of ways it it's right in line with trends that we've seen. And in certain ways, it, it bucks those trends and is a little bit unique. So so going broad between, so the Pew Research Center keeps track of like attitudes towards higher ed or has kept track of attitudes toward higher ed. And between 2010 and 2019, so the past decade, the share of Republicans or those who lean right who thought that colleges have had a positive effect on the country has dropped to 33% from 58%. It's like, it's a huge drop, basically. And I mentioned in the story that in a a 2018 survey, roughly eight in 10 Republicans said professors bringing their political and social views into the classroom were a major reason why the higher education system is going in the wrong direction. So there's a lot of um, dissatisfaction with higher ed right now um, from from Democrats. It certainly centers around the cost of attending college, much more so than the political and social views of of faculty members. But it's clear that there has been this really big shift nationwide in, in conservative attitudes towards higher ed. And Idaho's, you know, very red. And so it's it's not really surprising to find to find those attitudes there as well. What's interesting about this story in particular and what makes it a little bit of an outlier is that even though there is this kind of groundswell of conservative disdain towards higher ed in general, or sometimes higher ed in the abstract, and you'll hear about Marxism and liberal indoctrination and stuff like that on on Tucker Carlson or on some of these conservative shows, some research has indicated that Republicans and conservatives don't feel that level of distrust and disdain towards their local colleges. A lot of times it's certain institutions like Berkeley or Oberlin or big state flagships. um, Evergreen State, Reed College. We've got a lot of them in the the Northwest. Sorry. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. The Northwest is certainly rife with those like, you know, granola cruncher seeming, you know, bastions of liberalism. 
And it's kind of expected that a lot of a lot of those places certainly bear the brunt of conservative suspicion or derision, um, depending on depending on the specifics. But you know, North Idaho is a community college. It, it right. really does serve the community. It offers a lot of technical trainings for people in the area. Um, like a lot of community colleges, it's not just for students who are going full time, but it's for you know the betterment of locals who who want to you know take a class, learn something new, um, get certified in, in something. And so that was really interesting to me in that. You know, it wasn't it wasn't Boise State that um, some the local Republicans were having a lot of trouble with. It was their local community college, and you know, I don't know how indicative that is to other places. I don't know if that's a new wrinkle or a new or new trend, or maybe just a sign of how polarized these discussions about higher education have gotten. But it's definitely something I plan on looking at and thinking about more into the future because it, it certainly was was new for me to kind of stumble across that right. that interesting uniqueness totally and so like again let's just reiterate that you're a reporter you're not a researcher or an analyst or a pundit although well, you might be those other things too i don't know and i won't ask you to like speculate on those things but you get you did get a lot of public records you did get other people to speculate and you did and there is the campaign rhetoric that was on social media and stuff that you reported on pretty well as well so maybe among those things we might sort of at least hint at some possibilities like you mentioned how in some of these Kootenai County meetings that the Republican meetings that you mentioned they like they used Boise State like multicultural stuff and and BLM stuff in, in the way that Tucker Carlson talks about Berkeley or Oberlin or Evergreen State. But n- nowhere in your article was University of Idaho mentioned, which is like a very crunchy place, just like, just like at less than an hour down the road. And so I'm wondering, like, that is, you know, one of the former trustees of NIC used to be the superintendent of the Pullman School District, which is seven miles away from Moscow, Idaho. So there is, in, in, in our region, there's a lot of travel between those two. So do you have any sense of why, was it just opportunism or the fact that maybe the board is only five people that these guys decided to try to do this work at NIC as opposed to like University of Idaho? I don't really know. I've been doing research for the story. I did read a couple of really excellent pieces and other outlets that, that give a little bit of insight into this question. One is a story that BuzzFeed did back in 2017 on the Republican Party in Kootenai County. I think the headline now is, here's what happens when Republicans have no one to fight. But it was interesting. It was about the the history of the place and basically how the central committee there has tracked further and further right. and, And the writer, Ann Helen Peterson, kind of really graphs and maps out how how that happened. And even in that story, which was written five years ago, the Central Committee expressed a real interest in vetting candidates to make sure that they're true Republicans, which is now happening, and in in running people for nonpartisan elections. I think mm-hmm. the races right. that were mentioned in that story were hospital board trustee, school district trustee, and maybe and maybe one other. So I think the board of trustees race presented an opportunity. That's that's certainly how it was 
presented, but like the the county committee endorsed people for soil and water conservation district, you know, so it wasn't. And now there, um, I think there's like a, a levy race going on and maybe a school district race. So I think they're interested in not just the NIC in particular, but in all elections and, and races in their area. And perhaps the trustees race just fell under their purview. And as you mentioned, five trustees, you know, that that's small. That's especially when they're elected, that it's not hard to really change, significantly change the composition of a board in any given election year when it's right. five trustees total. Right. It strikes me that we don't know exactly what the threshold is for removing McLennan for office, but they have a super majority. They have 60% of the board, Banducci and his allies. So Yeah. And I should say at recent board meetings, like Greg McKenzie, who's, I guess, could be seen as an ally or who is seen as an ally of Banducci, has said that he likes the college president a lot. Like he supports Rick McLennan. So I guess I should, you know, I should mention that I haven't, I haven't seen any public or private conversations specifically gotcha. about removing the president other than kind of the conversation that the president recounted himself um, with the board chair, which says a lot. I mean, that that certainly says a lot about where Banducci's mindset is. I haven't seen anything develop on that front um, since, you know, this year or since the story came out. So one of the things that's so fascinating about me, and this might this might be an unanswerable question, but it's like you you wrote that one of the now board members, Michael Barnes, who I think is a, a Banducci loyalist, is quote a Navy a U.S. Navy veteran and IT security auditor, told voters he was running because higher education has failed our country. Quote it has slipped into quote ever more radical left progressive ideology and is dangerously promoting quote socialist objectives. And he posted that on Facebook. It, this is that's a common right wing canard like we talked about like that sounds like Tucker Carlson calling out cultural Marxism social justice warriors whatever but it was all in service of a, a board position at a community college which I, and I just kind of want to underscore this again it's like it's got a huge technical training focus I have a friend there who leads a like an entrepreneurship initiative and I see is literally training people to be productive pieces within a pretty classically capitalist framework so how do Barnes and Banducci square that the rhetoric with the reality or do they even try do they just sort of talk about the you know the the creeping specter of cultural marxism and and not really connect that to nic specifically or do they so that i can't answer really at all um because you know all i have from barnes's perspective are a speech he gave publicly and you know the things he said publicly on his social media but he didn't talk to me yeah um so, you know, can't really provide any insight into what he, you know, his ideological framework other than what, you know, what he said. Same with Banducci. I mean, I've never heard him say anything to, you know, to be clear, he hasn't expressed those opinions, at least in that way, yeah. like Barnes has. Right. So so then the, the last thing sort of a, trying to maybe hint about um, motivation here. And again, this might be another thing, but you at least had Dan Gookin, who's the city councilman from Coeur d'Alene, and also, I believe, a Republican, part of the, the Central Committee. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so he yeah. said, quote, Dan Gookin, a city councilman, described chatting with an energized Banducci after a Central Committee meeting, quote, he was just out for blood, saying, quote, they've been messing with him for eight years, they've been disrespecting him and kicking him to the curb, Gookin said, quote, and he was going to get his pound of flesh, unquote. 
and would recall called a similar conversation, like you said before, that if his two guys won, she was not going to be very happy. So, I mean, obviously there's partisan ideology at work here, but is, is some of this, does it feel like just personal animus or frustration from years of being the lone sort of at least outwardly ideological Republican voice? Yeah, I mean, see, this is where, this is why I like being a reporter because I like writing stories that speak for themselves and then yeah. not saying anything else. Um, but <laughs> I, know. I, I just know, I know that he, he said publicly that he felt in the minority for the eight years that he's been on the board before now, he, you know, in the ideological minority. And I, th- I mean, I think that's, that's clear. I'm sure that they had, they had lots of, you know, on any board, you're going to have a ton of things that come up, hopefully a lot of things that you're disagreeing on and having debate about. And yeah, I think at, I mean, he said at a recent board meeting that he, there were times when he, I think, I think the quote was, there were times when he felt he had no voice and now, you know, he does. Um, How much of that is, has been animated by personal feelings um, versus, agenda setting, you know, I mean, any elected official is going to have an agenda. That's kind of the whole point. You know, that's, that's not different or like every trustee I imagine has an agenda of things they want to see the college prioritize. So yeah, how much, what his actual motivations are, I definitely can't really say other than what, what people have kind of described them as being. So it might then also be outside your purview. So I'll maybe just double up two questions. One that I'm a little unsure if you'll be able to answer and another one I'm pretty sure you will. So do these guys have connections to a broader conservative movement working specifically on higher ed stuff? And have you seen anywhere where this strategy, they might have ambitions to mobilize it in other places or are they just trying to consolidate power in Kootenai County? Yeah, so that I am, that I have no idea. I mean, I'm, I'm not a politics reporter per se. So like my, you know, being part of being a national outlet is that you kind of home in on these specific stories that you find interesting that are happening all across the country. And, and then you leave or, and then you go on and move to something else. So like, you know, I hadn't heard of Kootenai County before (laughs) this came across my desk. So like, (laughs) I definitely can't, can't pretend to be an expert. And if, other county Republican parties or Democratic parties will take up similar tactics. You know, I, I, I really don't know. Okay, that kind of clears out a couple of my follow-up questions, but that's okay. Here's one quote that I wanted to get from you, and, and maybe this will just be sort of a way of us sort of sledding toward the end here. Is there something special in the political program going on in Kootenai County with the Kootenai County Republicans? Like, why isn't this happening? Using your lens as an education reporter, you've probably reported on, this isn't the first community college you've reported on. Like, why isn't this happening in every very, very conservative county with a small public college? Is it just that, like, people seem to like their local institutions, as you suggested earlier? You know, yeah, I'm sure I sound like a, a broken record, but it's it's so hard to generalize because, like, it, they, it might be. It might, you know, like, we've lost, I think, some crazy number of journalists over the past decade. Like, journalism as an industry has just shrunk, and where those jobs are getting cut from are local outlets. And right. I think, you know, I'm probably a little bit biased, but like higher education is one of the first beats that gets sucked up into, okay, now you're not just the higher ed reporter, you're the education reporter. And a lot of that is 
is K-12. So I, who's to say, like, I think that the things that are national in scope and that are happening is this really renewed focus on liberal indoctrination, quote unquote indoctrination happening in the classroom, cancel culture, pushes against uh, diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives, that kind of scrutiny. I do think we're in a peak for that kind of scrutiny. And I think that that's certainly played out in Kootenai County. But as far as like why this isn't happening at other community colleges, you know, you would need an, an army of reporters to actually examine if those dynamics exist yeah. at other community colleges, I yeah. guess is, is what I'm trying to say. I think that, you know, big name flagships and I just think a lot of what happens at community colleges can fly under the radar because it's the prestige colleges, Ivies, like those names of Harvard and Yale and, and they mean something in the kind of societal tapestry. Like we, we in kind of imbue them with meaning and um, imports and, and state flagships and state colleges certainly get a lot of attention because they get money from yeah. the state. They get taxpayer dollars and although, you know, less and less, but I think, you know, there could very well could be certain things that are very similar happening with other community colleges. It's just, you know, that's so far outside my, my realm of knowledge that I would hate to speculate. It seems like we have a, uh, a health board in Spokane County that's undergoing similar pains around a health officer who was fired in the middle of COVID <laughs> under kind of sketchy circumstances. And that's actually led the state legislature. L literally what happened here a couple months ago in Spokane sort of triggered something that had been simmering for a while. And now the legislature is going to take a step to almost certainly like basically make sure these these health boards of our local counties and regions are staffed or are made up of at least... 50% professionals and some of those positions will still be elected. So something, a controversy is leading to a systemic change triggered by the state legislature. Idaho, however, is pretty conservative all the way up the chain. Again, it's not clear exactly what, how much of this is rhetoric and if it might actually have, like what kind of impacts it's going to have on McLennan and his job and the overall health of NIC. But is there any hope for recourse at a state level or is this just going to be something that NIC folks are stuck with until they build the, the political power to, to elect a different board or change the composition? Yeah, well, uh, I guess I would challenge that framing a little bit because, sure. you know, the looking at it from the voters' perspective, the voters voted in who they wanted. Right. It's not so much a take. When I think takeover, I think you know some some kind of maneuvering behind the scenes that's not that's atypical of traditional politicking. And while I, I do think you know, having a local political party getting involved in a nonpartisan election does seem unique or novel. Like, you know, the fact of the matter is people voted in what they wanted to see. You know, they, they voted in change to, to the board. And so yeah, in terms of like, I, I don't really see it as like community resting back control or something like that, because it, it, it's clear, at least for the voters, what they wanted you yeah, know the community like, took control is what you're I saying i think that yeah yeah basically and i think that faculty members and staff members of the as they've shown through their votes of no, no confidence in banducci and they've passed their own resolutions asking for 
you know, an independent investigation of what's going on. They've asked uh, Bantucci to step down as chair. They asked for the board to reinstate conduct, uh, its conduct policy. You know, they're clearly at odds with the direction the new board has taken. But um, as far as the actual community, you know, those are the ones who, like they do, the trustees do only answer to the voters as has been impressed upon me through reporting the story. There's not, there's not a method to um, remove a trustee from office really other than if they lose an election. I, I don't really think they answer to a higher governing power, at least, at least to my knowledge. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I don't really remember where I was going with that, but, um, basically like as, and as Banducci has said, like he answers to the voters, the voters have elected him three times now. And I will, you know, Christy Wood in calling for his resignation when she did, she did get support from members of the community who looked at the actions that she described and thought, this is untenable. This is, you know, I think they called it disappointing or disgusting or something like that. But uh, a lot of people, you know, did not feel that way. Called her Nancy Pelosi or, you know, it's just become this, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of people did not support that, what she was calling for, you know? So I don't know. I guess that's a, a long way of saying, I don't know where the community goes from here. I don't know where the college goes from here, but. This is more of a statement and not something I'm going to ask you to answer or give your opinion on, but it like the question, the, the immediate question that jumps to mind for me is like, were we sort of just flirting with disaster when these were publicly elected, but quote unquote, nonpartisan positions and maybe in a, in a hyper, in an increasingly partisan world, maybe composing boards like this with a public vote you know, I mean, this might sound undemocratic of me, but is that the best way to run an institution? I don't know. Like, so anyways, that's, that's just something to maybe just like leave. Yeah, there, I mean, there are different governance structures, but then, you know, you get complaints out of the appointment structure when, you know, I, in a state like Mississippi, I believe all the members of the IHL or like the big governing body, I think are appointed by the governor. Uh, so right. it's not like they're, and they're, they're all coming from one political party or another when, when that happens. But sure. yeah, I've got a colleague um, who's really, really, who could probably give a better answer than I could on, on some of these questions of governance structure, but, but either way, it, did, it sounds it's like certainly, yeah. it's certainly interesting. Yeah. You're, you're never more than one or two degrees of Kevin Bacon away from a political person having influence on, on these decisions, I guess. Yes, that is certain. That is certainly true. <laughs> all right. Last question. I ask this of all my guests, uh, but it seems especially important to ask someone who covers education in, you know, we've talked about the brutal year we've had. We've taught and we sort of hinted at the decades of declining public funding and, and whatever competition, relevance, cost. So what gives you hope in this moment as you're doing this reporting every day? Mm-hmm. That was a good question. Well, I mean, I love doing my job. I I love, especially talking with students. Um, I think that that's probably one of the most fulfilling parts is just talking to people who are have had a really tough, awful year and are still trying to make their communities and their universities and their institutions 
better. You know, I find that, I find that really inspiring. And there are a lot of people who are really, really engaged in, in these conversations. And, you know, I, I don't know, I feel, I feel blessed to be able to do this. So I guess if that's a a positive note to end on. Absolutely. The the children are always and will forever be our future, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Emma Pettit, thank you so much. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Thank you so much for coming on range. And uh, thanks for sticking with me through all the uh, technical difficulties. Range heads will know this is a common occurrence. Uh, uh, It's usually my fault. This time it appears to maybe have been a computer's fault, uh, but we're not placing blame here. I just really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was fun. And thanks for doing this work. I think it's really, really important. Like you said, uh, sorry, I'm now I'm just kind of having more thoughts. Like higher ed is incredibly important. You're right that the way it gets the concomitant decline of journalism alongside, you know, problems with funding in, in higher education mean that, you know, there's less money to go around for everybody and fewer people sort of checking in on how that money is being spent and, and just how, you know, this, this vital aspect of, our civilization is is moving forward in these troubled times. So thank you so much for doing that work, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you're listening, you should subscribe to your local newspaper, local higher ed outlet. Awesome. Or we'll, to the Chronicle. We'll, <laughs> totally. And we'll, we'll include links to all that stuff in the show notes uh, and then and obviously links to this story as well. So thank you, Emma. Great. Thank you. That'll do it. Thank you so much, Emma Pettit, for coming on and talking about this story. It's wild. Secondarily, thanks to the repairman who figured out my boiler problem was not actually a boiler problem, saving me thousands of dollars. And finally, as always, thanks to my man Connor Bacon for editing the interview. Could not do it without you. Oop, one more thing. Go check out the BLM mural story, rangemedia.co. Daisy Zavala and Jenna Nash did a great job reporting it. And it kind of has a happy ending, which is nice. We don't get a lot of happy endings. Speaking of happy endings, I'm going to stop talking now. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.